Now we want to make sure that the volume is up high enough. We talked about that earlier today. Everybody okay back there? Okay. In these last couple of days, um, I've been feeling like we're coming to know one another as you're sharing your hearts and your minds with us. And yet, you know, here the three of us are up here in front, kind of guiding you, doing our best. This is the role we have now. But really, you know that, I hope you know that we're really your spiritual friends. And we've been through, if I may say so, for my colleagues, we've been through hell and heaven ourselves. So we know how it is when you, in our own ways, when you speak about what you speak about. The details may be different, but um, what's underneath the details, what fuels the ways we are human in our lives, are very much um, the same. So I wanted to begin with uh, being on a level playing field with all of you, because I'd like uh, to be able to speak in that way with you so that you really feel what's coming through in, in terms of what's real and not what's theoretical. So, um, in December of last year, and part of December and January, I decided to spend my holiday season alone without my family, people around me, because it'd been a few years that I was going through a, a process of loss. And you know how we in the Dharma and speaking for myself, we understand the, the deep um, characteristic of impermanence, but there are some things you get to in your life and you say, well, you know, of course I understand impermanence, but not this, right? Not this. I, I just don't know how I'm going to open to this one. And um, it always, it's very wonderful how often What shows up in our hearts are the very places, of course, that we need to bring attention to. And so there were years that I'd gone through this deep loss and done all kinds of things, you know, like um, walk the Camino de Santiago two times. Um, Do you know what that is? It's about a 700-mile or 800-mile walk from the north of Spain across Spain. Anyway, that was wonderful to do. And then there's, you know, a lot of hard work to not pay attention to the suffering inside oneself, uh, distracting myself with a lot of Dharma work. And also, it's not a distraction, it's a great service too. And so I took this time for solitude because uh, I really intentionally wanted to face what hadn't been really faced yet. And I thought a lot had been faced already in the sense of loss that I have. But it's so deep, you know. There's so many karmic things. What did the Zen people say? It's, um, anyway, it's crazy, you know. (laughs) It's chaotic (laughs) and it's crazy. I forget what they say, but that's what it feels like. And so... (laughs) I I spent Christmas, 
spent Christmas there, and I spent New Year's at the Forest Refuge. It's a place where also I work, at connected to Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And, um, and they're really good. You know, they leave me alone. They, they um, don't ask me any questions when I'm on retreat. <laughs> and uh, I don't have to see anybody. I can just be by myself and do my sitting and walking and doing whatever I do, my yoga every day and etc. And so during this time was a really special time for me. And one of the things that really opened my heart was that there were a lot of people there over Christmas time. I was really surprised. I thought I would be one of few. And when I asked uh, the person who was in charge there, she said, a lot of people come here because they don't want to be alone. And you know, my heart just, it just felt so connected to everybody. There were people there that were other teachers of the Dharma, you know, and they, who knows what their intention was to be there, to be alone, or to, um, you know, be with, with other Dharma fellows, uh, teachers and, and comadres and compadres, but I, I really, we really felt connected, and it was beautiful, beautiful time of snow, storms all around us, etc. So it was going through this time was, yes, I, I really understand that in the milliseconds, the mind has seen the impermanent nature in the microseconds of things, and it should be that deeply integrated, but there are places where it's no, it's not this. This can't be, you know, different kinds of a tapestry of losses in, in my life during a certain time period. So it was really challenging. It was really, really, really challenging to be with. And um, you know, because you all, you know, we're all at an age where We've been there. We've been to a lot of places, and we know how it is. So I don't have to tell you that, you know, there's different details to my story, but we all um, live in the same human world. And what we're trying to do, as my colleagues have been pointed out, pointing out, is we're really just trying to be human. Really, really human. And to be a good human being, a human being that can open to everything that needs to be open to and find that balance to do that. So luckily, um, I know you, you, there's a lot of things that we're going to listen, we can listen to this on Dharma Seed later too. Um, so at a certain point, I knew that, you know, I'd go to the Dharma Hall just to reality check. I know we keep you in here. We say, wait till the bell rings and then you can leave. But I know, <laughs> I know that's really hard to do because at the Forest Refuge, you can leave any time in the, in the Dharma Hall. You can come in any time and leave any time. And there were times I'd go in and I just, my intention was to be with things as they are in my heart. And I would open my eyes because that would bring a wider field. And I would say, I can't be with this. I, I really can't. So I would get up and I would leave. But, you know, just mindfully taking everything with me to another place. And 
a friend of mine, uh, another colleague on the path, we had taught a retreat together, and she said this poem. And um, I had brought my my bag of um, dharma uh, dharma talks because I was go- going to go someplace else with that and needed them. And so I looked for it, and it was it really really helped me to open and to fulfill my intention in in this human life to open to what needs to be open to because it's really cleaning up my act cleaning up the inner places where there's tightness and tension and there's um, closing down and there's a lot of um, intergenerational woundedness and there's a lot going on for all of us and so I'm just kind of want you to know that we're, you know, not just myself, but I can speak for my colleagues that we're not just talking down. We're on this level playing field here when we talk about this. So here's the poem. It's uh, kind of like um, a wisdom understanding. This is from Hogan Bay's uh, Zen Roshi in the community of Oregon. So, it's about how every moment is coming up according to causes and conditions and being able to be with it. So, in this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is a cost, I choose to pay. If there is a need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. When whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. I really feel the truth of that in my intention, but it's hard to live the truth of that, isn't it? It's really hard to live the truth of that, and that is the dilemma that we are faced with in this life as human beings. Not that it's hard to live that, but that we're still doing it. (laughs) We're opening to how it's hard. And we need a lot of compassion to do that. Not just wisdom, the wisdom of understanding how things are, but the compassion to be able to open to it. So this is my opening for this talk about compassion this evening. There's There's a saying, and I... 
I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find the the source about how um, wisdom and compassion are like two great wings of the Dharma. I didn't find it anywhere in the suttas, but it could be from the Zen tradition, actually, I imagine, but I don't know for sure. Tibetan, too. Okay, well... It's beautiful to understand these two great wings of the Dharma, which are compassion and wisdom. Because it's said that these two wings of the Dharma have to be strong. Both of them have to be strong, enable for the great bird of liberation of Dharma to really fly. And uh, we can't just be wise. You know, we can't just come from understanding in our heads about how it is and or agreeing with those who give very, you know, wise and brilliant talks. But it's really living out our lives and opening to the truth of how it is, which takes a tremendous amount of compassion. And in fact, um, it takes compassion to open to the truth of suffering. That's why the Buddha called it one of the most important, beautiful qualities of the mind that we must have in order to live this life. So these two wings of the great bird of liberation, compassion and wisdom. And it is one of the most beautiful feelings a person can experience when we have this unconditional compassion. That means no matter what the conditions are, we can offer compassion. We can open our hearts with compassion. We may not be able to act all the time on it, which is the true, complete meaning of compassion, but at least we're able maybe to open a bit, to face what's hard to face. Not just out there, which can be easier sometimes than opening to in here. So those of us who come to a place like this, we have already some great measure of compassion to be able to even do this work. It's that potential for us to be able to do this. It, as the more we have it, the more potential um, grows to be able to live it. To when, once we um, actually use it over and over again. So it's beautiful, and it's sometimes rare for us as human beings when we have this unconditional compassion especially for ourselves. This is um, much more rare and much more uh, challenging to do for most people, not for all, but I have to, for myself, that's true. You know, um, being a mother, the energy always goes out to the children, to the grandchildren, to the family, and so that's where it's gone from the tradition I come from also, the the uh, cultural tradition of the Philippines. It's where I come from. We're we're family-oriented. You know, it's always... It's wonderful to have that always giving. But to come to my own heart um, is oftentimes more difficult for me. So a a while ago, a couple of years ago, in preparation for a, a talk like this on compassion... I came across a lecture by Dr. Stephen Porges, and um, he's a director of the Brain Body Center at the University of Illinois, and his expertise is in neurobiology. 
And so he was giving a talk on the origins of compassion, and I looked up, looked it up, and um, listened to it, and read about it too. And I wanted to see how compassion, the origins of compassion, fit into neural biology, just to, you know, that potentiality for us all, all to be relieved of suffering, to be enlightened, to be liberated. That potential is there, but we have to make it possible. And one of the big things to make that possible is to open up our compassion. So his study spans the biology of the brain and the nervous system, which has both biological and sociological implications. So he pointed these out. So I'm pointing them out because they they are inbuilt strengths in us. They're strengths that... uh, they're, they're part of our potential for awakening. They're already there um, as potentials to, to grow. What Dr. Porges was trying to express is that we have this need as human beings for compassionate connection with one another. It's, it's a biological and sociological need. We go towards it, but sometimes I think with the busyness of life and the complexity of life, especially in our day and age, it can be covered up by our busyness, by our distractiveness, um, all those things, the, the quickness of all this information coming to us and we get locked into all of that instead of going here. So we're losing touch with our biological and sociological deep needs, which is, this is one of them. So he gave quite a unique description of compassion from the side of the giver of compassion as well as from the side of the receiver. So I just wanted to lay down some facts about that from science, actually. So from the giver's side, compassion, uh, it said, is a manifestation of our biological human need to engage and bond with others. Our human need to engage and bond with others, especially when we're in crisis. Now, I know sometimes I just want to give voice to some of us that sometimes we get frozen and we can't do that. You know, it's like we can't connect with one another or even with ourselves, and that happens too. But there's this deep biological need to really engage, to kind of, that's why we form tribes, you know. This is one little tribe of our lives. And then we have our other cultural tribes and our friend tribes and our um, gender tribes and all of that. Our um, many ways that we form connections with others. In the Dharma, compassion is called the quivering of the heart that wants to alleviate suffering. It's like um, when I feel that quivering of the heart, it makes me feel like I'm alive, that my heart is really beating with hearts of others, and I want to connect that heartbeat with others. I really want to connect that, that life force. That's what the quivering Um, exemplifies to me. So most of us are familiar with the fight, flight, fight, flight, or freeze modes that come up when there's um, some kind of trauma in our lives. And this is true, of course, 
But it's interesting that um, some of the people who have been doing research in uh, trauma and, and compassion at the Stanford University came up with a fourth uh, response that also has been discovered as an automatic natural instinct. It's interesting that that automatic uh, natural instinct is to soothe. It's that reaching out, you know, when there is suffering, like you were speaking, who was speaking about today, you were speaking about today, that it was difficult to hold that back. You had to hold on to your leg to, to not reach out because that is a very natural response to want to reach out. And I do understand what what Eugene was saying today is that we, we're doing this as a way to investigate what's going on inside, you know, when, when that happens. So we're not saying don't do this all your life. We're just saying it's, it's a way to really investigate what's going on inside. So you saw that. And among other things that Eugene pointed out, you saw that, um, that natural instinct. And I think Eugene gave voice of, to that too. So it is very natural to soothe But you know what I realized when I read this? I don't do that a lot to myself, for myself, when I'm going through something difficult. I I don't tend to, as much as, how many times have I given this talk, and it says at the front of this page, you know, so many times (laughs) I've given this talk to so many, and I really try my best, but it's hard. I'm just saying I know it's hard, but I know how to do it too. I mean, um... Sharon always says to me, don't give all your foibles out. You know? <laughs> so, so I do know how to soothe. But it's, I have to say, it's not that easy you know, for, to do that for myself. So um, that soothe to give is um, that natural generosity that we have of compassion. That's from the giver's side. But from the receiver's side, there's a biological quest for safety to be in the proximity of others that we feel safe with. So isn't it so that when we feel something difficult going on, we think of the person who will be with us. We'll think of the person who will hear our story yet again, you know, and, um, and just be with that suffering that we're, we're still not over with. And so we reach out for those people. We want to be in proximity. Um, the receiver of, of compassion wants to be in the proximity of others who have kind of like a, um, a way of being with you in your difficulty. So when we're in pain or suffering and we sense a compassion in another, we're drawn to that, to um, as a way of protection, as a way of surviving, really. So, um, have you heard about the parable of the prickly porcupines? Have you heard that story? It's a beautiful little story. It's about surviving. So, <clears throat> it was the coldest winter ever, so cold that many animals froze to death. In an effort to save themselves from this icy fate, the porcupines decided to gather together to fend off the chill. They huddled close to each other, 
covered and protected from the elements and warm by their collective bodily heat. But their prickly quills proved to be a bit of a problem in close proximity. They poked and stabbed at each other, wounding their closest companions. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) The warmth was wonderful, but the mutual needling became increasingly uncomfortable. Eventually, they began to distance themselves from one another, scattering in the forest only to end up alone and frozen, and many died. It soon became clear that they would have to choose between solitary deaths in the frigid wilderness and the discomfort of being needled by their companions' quills when they banded together. Wisely, they decided to return to the huddle. They learned to live with the little wounds caused by the close relationship with their fellows in order to benefit from the collective heat they generated as a group. In this way, they were able to survive. So it's kind of like um, a parallel to what we do. You know, we learn to live with the little wounds, with forgiveness, acceptance. and We learn how to soothe ourselves when we need to and to open to others. So even when there are prickly little problems, of course, when this happens, we feel an open-hearted flow of energy um, towards others, positive energy towards ourselves. And there's this unhesitating courage to help others or to help ourselves, of course, even when it's hard to bear. And... I don't know about you, but when I'm able to do that for others, it's because I know in some way I can do that for myself and vice versa. That when I'm able to open to that woundedness inside myself, I can open to the wounds of others. And this is what gives me a great sense of integration, of integrity, of human integrity, because I feel that everything's that the everything in me, the positive forces and the negative forces can come together. They can be known. They can be shown. They can be faced. They can be acknowledged. They can be um, honored in a way that says, I see you too. I see you. I really see you. So there, there are places that we we need to do this for ourselves because maybe we didn't get it from our parents. Who knows from what? You know, from way back when. And I'm not trying to be psychological now, though it seems that way. But um, I, I know because my mother lived through World War II, a very difficult time in the Philippines. And um, the horror she went through was, is uns- they're unspeakable, really. My mother would howl when she told stories about them. And I, it's interesting, you know, I gained that from my mother, the, t- the ability to cry and to howl when things were hard. And so she didn't see me so much, but I knew she totally loved me, you know. She wasn't the perfect mother, but she didn't see me. And that, that was, you know, when I was growing up, I would... 
Mom, you don't really know who I am, you know? And, um, and so I had to do that for myself and go through a lot to be able to do that, to really see myself. It, it's been a, you know, a really steep learning curve and gained a lot of strength from being able to do that for myself, for, you know, this sense of self. So it's so sort of a kind of wholeness that one feels, you know, a kind of non-religious sacredness that one feels. Do you have a sense of that when you're able to face something that's really hard? It feels so sacred, doesn't it? Like we're able to navigate the, the, the waters of our inner life and we know how to set the sails or take them down. We know how to do stuff with our ship that we call this sense of self navigating these waters so we we get we gain strength inner strength from that and these are this is part of the the way of being human you know that we're able to admit not with humiliation but with humility yeah this is part of this life of being human too i i feel this way and that way you know i'm not so proud of some some ways that I feel towards life and towards myself. So um, it can be a beautiful part of our lives to face the painful parts and to have a deep care for the painful parts of ourselves instead of finding ways to avoid it. Or, you know, when I would get up from the hall in... Um, in, in Massachusetts at the Forest Refuge. Yeah, some of it was trying to avoid it because it was too hard sometimes. And, and it was also a way of self-soothing that I knew if I took a walk, it would be better. So there wasn't, you know, a total like disconnect. There was like having some wisdom to know what to do, to be balanced with what's happening and to maybe taking a walk would be better. But also knowing sometimes it's too overwhelming. It's just too much sometimes. So we find the appropriate thing to do, to handle it, to face. So in some mysterious way, compassion makes us feel complete as a human being rather than, you know, that there's something wrong with us that we have to face because we need to bring up compassion. It's because something inside is shouting, pay attention. It gets to shout so loud because it, it wants to say, I'm here. Can you hear me? Can you see me? I feel sad. I feel raked over the coals by this and such and such condition of life. I feel angry, you know, it's this anger is coming up. So it's saying, can you please come to me? Can you please touch me softly with a measure of compassion? So what does compassion mean etymologically? In, in passion, you know, in, in uh, I speak a little Spanish, so... Passion means actually coming from the Latin doesn't mean just passion. It actually means suffering in, in Latin. So compassion is with suffering. It's to be with the suffering. So um, 
that's what the intention of compassion is. You can see the intention in the etymological definition of it, to be with the suffering. So it's, it's sometimes it has to get so bad that it's kind of shouting at us to say, I've been here a long time. Can you see me? You know, or I've been here in such great loneliness because it's just waiting for to be with that compassion, to be softly and say with me and say, I'm here for you. I'm here not to make it go away or not to fix it, but just to acknowledge, I see you, you're here. I don't forget you. And so this is what compassion is. It's that soft, gentle attention to what's really rough, to what's really hard, to what's like unbearable to face sometimes in its complexity or its tapestry of of awfulness. And so little by little we're able to come to that place. And this is you know, in, in the way that we've tried, we're trying to offer in the um, ways that we can, you can come to open to this place of actually saying it out loud. You know, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to do this in safety, um, to be able to say out loud how, you know, if we talk long enough, it'll get there to that place that says what we couldn't say before or feel before. So it's kind of like this holistic completeness. And this is celebrated in the Dharma as inner wealth. This inner wealth of compassion. There are a lot of different kinds of wealth. I'll speak about that maybe later. The beautiful qualities of mind. But compassion is one of the most beautiful and one of the essential qualities that we have to have as a human being in order to really be fully liberated, fully, completely, and to be able to face ourselves on our deathbed and to be able to live our situations in our life and to be able to live moment to moment with what comes up, you know, in just all these levels, all these facets of life. This inner wealth no one can take away from you. That's okay. No one can take away from you. From us, it's something that um, will go with us. If you believe in um, rebirth, you know, then it will go with you, um, or whatever. You know, you it, the next moment it will go with you to the next moment. Manindra would always say, "You don't have to believe it," but it's true. <laughs> he would just say it so matter-of-factly, so. I would think, well, okay, I want to see for myself, like the Buddha said, but I trust you. So compassion is that strength of love that opens to what's difficult. If you want, you know, just kind of like a practical definition of compassion, it's what opens with love to that which is suffering, to that which is difficult to open to. So in the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, uh, the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths. So I want to connect compassion to this very um, important 
Dhamma, truth, understanding that the Buddha, this was his first Dhamma talk to um, the ascetics who, who were around him during that time. When the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths, he started with the reality of what we're all faced with as human beings. The Buddha was a realist, not a pessimist. I mean, a lot of the First Noble Truth is translated as life is suffering, right? But that's what a terrible way to bring people to the Dharma. That, <laughs> that's not what this is translated, that the First Noble Truth is translated into. There's... Um, two words that I know of that um, exemplifies or is the, the first noble truth and that is just dukkha sacha. Sacha means the truth and dukkha means suffering. So what does that first noble truth say, mean? It's there is the truth of suffering. That's what it starts out with. When I heard this, I, I was raised as a Catholic and I'm not a recovering Catholic. I revere how I was raised that way. There were many good things I came that came with me from that. But it was always like I had to reach something really far away, like be as pure as a Blessed Virgin Mary or, you know, as loving as Jesus and, and then I would be okay. You know, it's always like a big reach. But with this, it was like, Oh, this is starting where I am. This is actually acknowledging where I am as a human being. And it, it was really, I really felt like I was acknowledged. You know, that I'm, yeah, there is the truth of suffering. I, I, I agree with that. I, I totally agree with that. So, um, it's, there's, there can be no denial about it, you know, to, to say the other things about the Four Noble Truths, but won't go into them totally here. The second truth is that there is a cause of suffering, and craving is that cause. There is an end to suffering. There can be an end to suffering. And there is a way, a path to the end of suffering, and that's the Eightfold Noble Path. So all of that, probably you've heard different talks, and or if you haven't, you will. So throughout his life, he taught that it's this quality of compassion that's greatly needed to actually open to the first noble truth. Because without getting, even getting to compassion, you can't really open to the first noble truth. It's always avoiding, covering up, distracting oneself, chasing after what's pleasant, running away from what's unpleasant. That, you know, this is kind of like the rounds of samsara, keeping us on the wheel. So it has a vitally important role uh, to develop. We want to develop this, but we develop it by bringing that soft, kind um, attention of compassion to what's going on inside of ourselves, to the difficulties, to what's really hard to bear. So in our practice here together, um, this is what we're doing. And I love this, um, by this reading by Khalil Gibran, and he talks about opening to what's difficult, and bearing the fruit of that can be really beautiful. So he says... Your pain is the breaking of the shell 
that encloses your understanding, even as a stone of the fruit must break open that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. So this is the breaking of the shell that has that seed that's going to grow that beautiful tree and bear the fruit. And that's the metaphor that's here. So, of course, we live in this world there. It's constantly getting our attention, um, the shifting planet, melting icebergs and glaciers, this climate change that we're all affected by and all in, in many ways causing as well. The cultural, racial, gender, economic inequalities that are so rampant and actually... Uh, Gratefully so, they're, they're more out in the open. We, we see the equalities, we're really fa- inequalities, we're really facing them. The tsunamis that are happening in our own communities, in our intergenerational experiences and in our personal lives. Um, and usually through all this, compassion is often thought of as helping others and facing the world out there, so we neglect the world in here because we think, well, this is the way to develop compassion, but we really forget ourselves. So compassion, it says, can be developed when we're not only compassionate to all the beings out there, you know, the beings that are close to us, the benefactors, the friends, all the neutral people, all the difficult people, but ourselves as well. We need to include that. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says, the meaning of suffer- um, until you understand the meaning of suffering yourself, there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your own compassion. So by being with what's difficult, um, we're developing a lot of connection. And we're sort of making whole those parts of ourselves that been, have been forgotten have not been connected with. We're making that, you know, a lot of us talk about the interconnectedness with all of life, but very few of us talk about, in my experience, and maybe not yours, the interconnectedness with ourselves, with all of the parts of ourselves, the parts that are the shadow, what they call the shadow side, the parts that are, some of us have a harder time connecting with the beauty of our hearts. So it's that interconnectedness that really makes us a complete whole human being, a human being with, um, you know, an honorable human being with great integrity, that kind of integrity that makes that wholeness in our lives. So we experience this truth of suffering that the Buddha talked about in his first noble truth in these ways. Um, He talked about pain in the body, hunger and illness, pain pain in the mind and the heart, like sadness, hatred, holding tightly to opinions, resentment, not feeling good enough, jealousy, 
the uncontrollability of the mind. This is, you know, nerve-wracking and chaotic sometimes. The inability to hold on to anything, pleasant or unpleasant, because it goes away. It's always changing. So we're becoming familiar with the vulnerability of life. And one way that one person described the first noble truth is life is vulnerable. And that, that's the truth because it's always changing and um, can't hold on. So we come to know this. Life is telling us this over and over and over again. And, you know, I'll even say to myself, when are you going to really learn it completely, Kamala? You know, well, it's just sort of a way of saying to myself that... Um, I'm not learning it completely, but I do have an intention to learn it completely. So I love this um, by Mark Nepo. He's a poet and a writer, and this one really touched me uh, because he was talking about his own challenges as he journeyed through his own health crisis and a lot of um, pain in, in his family life. How many of you know of Mark Nepo? Some of the beautiful writings, yeah. He says, Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. In which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So it's really so beautiful the way that's put because it, 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 what it does is it makes that beautiful, shining, lustrous pearl of wisdom. So we're given that opportunity over and over again and, and this is where suffering and the compassion we bring to it makes for wisdom. This, this is for how wisdom and compassion, those two wings of that great bird, come together and are strong. We become connected to all of that. So sometimes when I'm feeling a really difficult moment, um, and I know that you know there is this great, powerful awareness that you've all been talking about, bringing awareness to what's going on and really having from all of you seeing that you're having deep layers kind of being exposed and really understanding them, coming close to them. And awareness is great. And what can accompany awareness? Sometimes what we need is compassion. So there can be both awareness and compassion together coming to that moment of difficulty. Sometimes I understand for this sense of self that there is awareness there but I really need to be softer around it because sometimes I feel that I'm coming to this pain like okay if I'm just mindful of it it'll go away do some of you have that okay I'll just be mindful and then I'll see the impermanent nature and it will just disappear Um, and so well okay that's good for the wisdom factor and it may be true But you know what? It's just going back into the karmic stream to come up again and and hit us again here. 
So one way that we can handle it is just bring more compassion uh, with it because we're, we're kind of hitting it with aversion in some ways or with attachment to result. So, you know, that's going to come up again. So um, when we can bring compassion to the moment, there's a greater chance that there can be a true opening to that moment. You know, an opening where it's not about making it go away. It's not about wanting it to happen in a certain way, fixing it. It's not about any of that. It's, it can. What compassion does is help mindfulness awareness do its job. To just be aware. Without mixing in any wanting it to be different or aversion because it's too hard. It really just helps mind awareness do its job. So I have to sometimes put in a compassion phrase. And so this, this, these phrases are like intentions. With intentions, you don't really know if it's going to happen or not, but you put the intention out. Um, so the intention for compassion to arise may be, may I open to this pain with more gentleness. Something really simple like that. Or simply, may I be able to face this pain with more courage. So it's something, uh, saying something that I know is really needed and you need some discernment there, you know, to be able to know, can we bring compassion into play right now and what words are the right words to use? I offer these words to you, but they don't, they don't have to be that. They can just be compassion. It can be just that intention to open to this moment with compassion. And sometimes, somebody taught me this um, at at a kind of a a health workshop I was at. And so I joined this group in the evening that was talking about negative thinking. And um, I thought, I can learn from every side. I'm going to go there. Not that I think I know everything because I'm a Dharma teacher. So I went to that gathering and it taught me something that stayed with me for a long time. It's they said when there's a negative thought that comes up, you can just say, bless this thought. And I thought, that's so compassionate. You know, it was just like, I didn't even have to say, may may compassion come to this moment. I just would say, okay, bless this thought. It's as if you know, you're being kind to that thought in that moment. And it wasn't with, bless this thought, now go away. It was more like, just, okay, blessings upon this thought. So it shifted. It shifted the valence of the, the energy in my, my heart-mind, right? When you do that. So... It gives us the courage to face the first noble truth of dukkha satcha. And when the Buddha expounded more on the first noble truth, when he expounded more on the first noble truth, he mentioned the hallmarks of our basic vulnerability as human beings. And so this is really important to to know from the Buddha's teaching that our basic hallmarks of vulnerability as human beings are these. Birth. And I might add, because I'm a mother, birthing a child. Okay, so birth and aging. 
sickness, death, including the dying process. So this is all mentioned in, in this um, a sutta of, of the first noble truth, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Birth, aging, sickness, death, and the dying process. Also included in that is being with those we don't like, being separated from those we love by death or other ways, wanting to have and keep what's pleasant, but of course it goes away, running away or avoiding what's unpleasant, but it returns, you know. So it's undeniable that these are all the basic places of vulnerability we have in our lives as human beings. And the, the thing is, how are we going to face that? We need a lot of compassion to kind of meet that in a commensurate matter, manner. So um, there's a lot of dukkha. You know, just this is part of it and all that it entails. And we're learning how to be with it. Um, we're learning that there's these deep habit patterns that come over and over and over again and we need that level of compassion and awareness to be able to be with it. We have to kind of keep practicing to make those patterns deep as well. Awareness, compassion, and the other um, qualities that we may talk about. Because what comes up for us is not, like Mark Mark Twain says, self-knowledge is not always good news. We're, (laughs) We're just learning, you know, over and over again. So, coming to the end of the talk now, um, there's more, but for another time. This is from David White, one of my favorite poets. This is part of, um, it's a long poem, so I want to tell this one part that has to do with what we're speaking about tonight. And it's called The Opening of Eyes. It is the opening of eyes long closed, It is the vision of far-off things, seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. Speaking out loud in the clear air. So what, this is what we're doing in our our time here together. And it's a lot of beautiful sacred moments. to bless and and to be, uh, I feel honored to be a part of and learn from too. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.